obviously the best part of the Buckingham Cup is, no question, the finals come. So let's just say number one seed ends up playing the number two seed in the final. They have to room with each other the night before the final. So whomever, whatever hotel room they were in or whoever they were sharing with, they have to room. So basically we could get Hanya El-Hamami rooming with Noran Gohar the night they play before they play for a million dollars first prize. Better yet, there's a live stream cam in their hotel room. So we get to watch their interactions. I mean, how great would it be? I mean, you know, Hamami would like, like hide Noran's eye contact solution or something like that. And just what would happen? Can you imagine Ali Farag playing Diego Elias in a final and they're rooming together and like Diego's like Diego's just has his toiletry kit like all over the place. And it's like laying all over the sink and like Ali knowing Ali probably has like everything perfectly laid out, like his shampoo and his shaving cream and all that kind of stuff. So I think I just solved squash. Hey there, Squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with myself, Connor Malley, and my co-hosts, Bill Buckingham and PJ Paul Johnson. And look at this, we're starting to set a trend. In this episode, we have a guest on, Aiden Harrison, who you might remember from another interview on Squash Radio, but he joins us to share some updates about his summer being the Barbados national coach at the Commonwealth Games and the Caribbean Junior Championships. Aiden at the Owencia Club in Chicago had established one of the best doubles programs in the country. And we talk about what the future of doubles might look like, and maybe softball will be seeing an uptick. Then we go through the upcoming U.S. Open draws and give a preview of the action that's coming. Last, with the Nations Cup to be hosted in New Zealand, this event is going to be a testing of new formats. So we thrash around some new ideas with a moment of true inspiration from Bill. An interesting twist on the Buckingham Cup, proving a broken clock is right twice a day. Check it out. We're excited to be back, and thanks for listening. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, your trusted lighting source for racket sports facilities like squash, tennis, pickleball, or padel because of its advanced LED lighting technology. These lights are a perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but they can easily be retrofitted into existing courts. If you're looking for lights or know anyone that is, please go ahead and connect us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of The Breakdown with my co-hosts, Bill Buckingham and PJ Paul Johnson. Guys, it's good to see you. Look at this. We're recording another one. Only two weeks after the last one, Connor. Our fan, I got to say, the last one, um, the 72 people who listened to it were very pumped up, and I got a lot of people asking, are you going to do it now more regularly than you did in the past? I said, now that Connor has settled in Colorado for almost three weeks, that we are going to be on a regular basis, so... It's great to be back. And I would like to put on the record, though, every time we don't record, I think that's more on you, Bill. I'm, I, Why would you say it? Why? Because I'm ready to record every week. Dude, Dude. You, you say yeah, that. Me, me too. Yeah. There's only one person who lets the team down. Yeah, PJ. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's, 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 let's go, let's right, go let, forward. Let, let's just get into it. Yeah. Let's just get into yeah, it. Yeah, let's get into it. Because, you know, the recriminations and the lies and all that. And by the way, just know uh, this was supposed to be recorded yesterday. And the three of us did show up and at, at the prescribed time. But our special guest that you're going to introduce, I'm gonna introduce um, yeah. uh, didn't show up. I, so I, I do need to jump in. And I think that's more on me. So I'm going to take it. 
why would it be on you if three of us showed up and he didn't? Because we in the text, if you read it, we all agreed to 1 p.m. Uh-huh. And I forget why we changed it to 1230. But it was not communicated. Cool. So. All right. Yeah. All right. Anyway. All right. Go ahead. It's nice to have him here. I it's guess. it's good. And he's already been a guest on the show on the channel Squash Radio. But we have Aiden Harrison. Welcome to the show, Aiden. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, since you've been on the show last time, you've actually had a lot going on in your life. And we'd like to dive into that kind of like you have a new role. You had some amazing experiences this past summer. So let's start on where you're dialing in from today. Hold, hold on before. Oh, so you think our audience knows who Aiden Harrison is? Is that what you're saying, Connor? Yes. So no, re- no need to intro, intro him because the 15 people who listened to your three hour interview with him last time are all listening Anyone to this one. Who knows anything about squash. Knows who no. he is. Okay. All right, go ahead. It just happens that you're not really that involved, Bill. Obviously, apparently. Go ahead. You don't know who it is, but... Fair enough. I appreciate that, PJ. And for many different reasons. Yeah, so Aiden, tell, tell us where you're dialing in from today. I am dialing in from my new place of um, work is Westchester Country Club in New York and loving it. And your title is Director of Squash? Correct. Yes, I've taken over the role here as Director of Squash. And- and in the neighborhood of PJ. So I'll get to see him a lot more now. <laughs> and how's your team building out since uh, you, you've j- taken over? I've acquired two pros, Mashumba Makumba from Zimbabwe. He was here all summer. And then Ashley Reed, I acquired him. He just moved to the New York area. And he is now my head pro in charge of junior development. Well, and um, this past summer, you had a lot of record firsts. And so walk us through kind of um, what were some of the highlights for you? Well, first of all, um, I got a WhatsApp message uh, asking me to coach the Barbados Junior Squash team and the senior team for the Commonwealth Games. And I thought it was PJ pulling pulling a quick one on me, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was actually a real text message, WhatsApp. And um, I spent uh, May through August down on the rock in Barbados, having a great time with no air conditioning, giving lessons and wearing a mask. They just lifted the mask mandate yesterday. Oh, sorry, last week. So, yeah, it was a great experience. Went to Guyana. We finished second in the overall team championships there. One of our players won the under-19 girls Caribbean championships. And then um, had an unbelievable experience with 7,000 athletes in Birmingham in England for the Commonwealth Games. And Barbados team did really, really well. And they came back as one of the highlights of their Commonwealth squads. So it was overall a great experience. And during that time, I accepted the position here as Westchester. So I've been bouncing around a lot this summer, but I'm happy to be a little settled now. What's it like in Barbados, the squash scene down there? A lot of clubs or just a couple of clubs? What's the, give, give us a, a little, uh, little um, color on that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like individual courts around the island. Um, biggest one is Barbados squash club. It has three courts, which is down just south of the capital um, and on the Hastings beach side. But there is an unbelievable private doubles court down there that I was able to play on a couple of times and it's pretty spectacular so that was a private hardball hardball or softball doubles hardball doubles interesting is there no air conditioning in the courts down there and if not like when do they just like play in the heat all all year um there is air conditioning in some of the courts but when you're preparing to go and play in Guyana where there is absolutely zero air conditioning that was the whole premises on that. So yeah, it was it was warm, like you know, doing six or seven hours in a row with no air conditioning, <laughs> wow. a bit draining in a mask. Right, right. Good weight loss, though. It was excellent weight loss. <laughs> yeah. I've got it all back though. <laughs> you planning the trip, Bill? 
No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to go to Barbados. Their their rum is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Is it is it like everywhere? Like everybody just drink. I just picture everybody just hanging around drinking rum. Rum and ginger ale, very popular drink down there. Yeah, yeah, like the old school yeah. dark and stormy what, almost. Yeah. What were the goals or the expectations of the team or the players down there, Aiden? Is it is it the Island Games, which is the pinnacle? What what would you say is the main events that they try and target to win medals or? Yeah. Like, so so the way it works down there is obviously they've got a very good strong backing from the Barbados Olympic Association and. Um, for the juniors, you know, when I got there in May, they'd only been playing for a month since lockdown. So it was not expectations too much for the first Caribbean Championships. But when we got to Guyana, we were seeded four and we did really well and came second in the end. So got the silver. So they were, I was very happy with the way they came together. And um, we went to the Commonwealth Games. We're not going to win the individuals, obviously, but, you know, there's always a shot, outside shot at the doubles. So. The only thing that you know that we're lacking in Barbados is there's no softball doubles mm. court. Now there's only a couple around the country, but it definitely is an eye opener to see softball doubles in the Commonwealth Games yeah. and how it's played and even how it's uh, commentated on mm-hmm. PJ. Even better. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to spend some time on on that in a little bit, but I'm curious with um, giving us some color of the Commonwealth Games. I mean, w- what was the highlight for you during the trip? I think. The, the highlight for me was even right from the beginning when you go and you pick up your uniform and you've got your bag and you've got your everything and everybody's wearing the same. You get on the plane down in Barbados and you arrive into England and you get on the bus from Heathrow and you're together as a team. And you and that's what team events are about, is just getting being together as a team and then do all the planning and the training and the build-up to it. But then opening night is something pretty special when you walk out into that stadium with 30,000 people cheering and everybody's clapping and it's just and you stood with all those different coaches and athletes and it's like wow really this is it we do have a gold medalist sitting in this foursome right now who's won the gold medal at the Commonwealth Games is old PJ yeah many moons ago 1998 that was (laughs) I think that was the first time that was ever put into the Commonwealth Games a lot of lot of uncertainty and un, unfamiliar territory for a lot of players in that one, but uh, yeah, amazing. That was an amazing. I mean, the Commonwealth Games were probably the pinnacle of my career. Sixteen days over there in Malaysia was a was about as good as it got for me. So yeah, a lot of fun memories. Aiden, who's the most prolific Barbadian athlete participating in the Commonwealth Games? Not in squash, but overall. Um, Shade, uh, she was the uh, four hundred meet four hundred meter runner. She uh, she won the gold medal oh, at the Commonwealth. What, Games. what was her name? Shade. Yeah. Um, Shade. Come, yeah, come on the last night. Yeah, now, so but so, so was, very prolific then, right? Oh no, she was prolific. She was. It was, and what was unique about the Commonwealth Games is you're all staying in the village, and all those athletes are around you. Mm-hmm. They're there at breakfast. You walk by them, and one thing very unique about the Commonwealth Games this year was um, when the boys had like the Paralympics after the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. This time at the Commonwealth, they combined it, so you got oh. to be around those athletes at the same time. It was it was special. Mm-hmm. It was good. That's cool. Well, who was the most famous athlete you saw there, period, overall? Like, did any people would recognize any anybody? Like, any track and field athlete or swimmer or anything like that? Um, oh, I think it has to be, uh, you know, Paul Cole or somebody, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, that's a good setup, yes. I, I can imagine walking out to the stadium is just like, what a fantastic moment that is. And that, that would be kind of 
a highlight for anyone, but what about behind the scenes? What was something like every day that whether you and the team look forward to that, you know, wasn't just being on stage, but like in the village, what was something you guys were like, this is really special. What, what jumps to mind? I will say right now, and I'm sure PJ will agree with me, the, um, the attention to detail of the support staff during the event and the volunteers at the Birmingham Games was incredible. Mm. I mean, there was volunteers everywhere on every corner saying, do you need anything? Do you need help? Do you need that? And I thought for the first couple of days, they were just trying to get in the routine, but it was all the way through. When you got a village open 24 hours and the security was off the charts, I mean, you could not go anywhere. And they were looking to protect, obviously, the athletes and all the attendants. And it was just really, really, really well done. One of the things I remember was quite um, kind of unique. I played in some pretty big um, events and championships over the years leading up to the Commonwealth Games. But what I really struggled, not struggled, but found just so interesting was the different shapes and sizes of athletes depending on the sports that they were playing. You know, from the 800-meter runners to the long jumpers to the marathon runners to the sprinters. It was just to see these different body types that were so specific to their sports was because generally in, in the villages you'd have the canteens and stuff, as Aidan said, would be open 24 hours and you'd be going in, you'd see these athletes in there and just, you know, just seeing the, the, the magnitude of the food that some of these athletes would consume. and But the, the body the types were for me was something that I just I was completely amazed by. It was pretty cool, pretty bizarre, but pretty cool. I was wondering, and I always ask this question. I asked, I think I asked it of Rich Wade when he did the um, the big Pan Am games that took place in Toronto, maybe like four years ago or whenever that was, five years ago. And you always hear about it when the Olympics are happening. You're talking about the Olympic Village. Is it true that like in the common areas that there are buckets full of condoms? That's true. Hundred <laughs> percent. That is true. And they get and, and they get refilled. Do people a lot. take? Do, do people take? Yeah. So they do people take them? Do you take them on a lark, or do people actually take them? Like and say, hey, these, this is- these are these are athletes full of testosterone. <laughs> you know, uh, in an environment where there's a there's a lot going on, so it's it's inevitable that that kind of stuff obviously goes on. That's uh, why. Um, that's why PJ was staying in a separate hotel. Well, I'm also wondering: are there little Johnsons maybe running around <laughs> Malaysia right now, who are maybe maybe 20 years old or so? Have any come? That's why, they were, that's why condoms were provided, Bill. All right, all right. Just checking. Just checking. I was purely focused on my job in hand. I had a singles and then a doubles event to contend with first. All right. Well, let's make this natural transition to double squash. And uh, Aiden kind of brought this topic up because in the last podcast we spent a lot of time doing a deep dive on um, a hardball doubles and talking on that. And Aiden has established out in Chicago one of the best doubles programs in the country. He's a great player himself. So his understanding of doubles, he's a, a, an expert. And this was your exposure to softball doubles hadn't been that much. Isn't that right? Yeah, I'd, I'd hardly had too much of it. But, um, you know, I'd seen it played a few times. I actually played in the first ever world doubles in 97 in Hong Kong for USA. So that was my first experience. And that was when we had a 19 inch 10 and our first match was scheduled for an hour and lasted three hours, two V one. And that's softball or hardball? Softball. Softball. And so now with your experience of the Commonwealth games and what's your perspective on the softball game versus the hardball game? And you know, there's an element of how, how as a sport we can include uh, just more doubles. So what's your take? My take, I mean, I love hardball doubles. It's a great game. It's completely different, different angles, um, lots of creativity, and 
you know, different heights and different things. And going from that and seeing it and then going to watch the Commonwealth Games and the quality of the softball doubles, um, it kind of tinkered my eye a little bit. And I was thinking to myself, wow, how could this be more incorporated? Because in the big picture for the Commonwealth Games, the Pan Am Games, the Asian Games, and hopefully the Olympics, 60% of the medals are from softball doubles. You know, you've got the singles for the men's and women's, you've got mixed doubles, men's doubles, and women's doubles. So with that being said, I had a lot of conversations with national coaches during the Commonwealth Games, and they all basically flat out said, we're not going to win the individuals, so, but we've got a lot better chance of winning the doubles in medals, and those medals help us get funding going forwards to go to different events. So a lot of these associations have put a lot of time and energy in, even hired outside coaches to come in and you can see they're being rewarded. India did really well. Malaysia did excellent. New Zealand, Scotland. Australia, Scotland, Wales. You know, these countries that they were not going to win on the individual side are now putting a lot of resources into the softball side. And a lot of technology and stuff is, you know, helping them do it. There was some great preparation from... Um, from like uh, New Zealand, they had like heated areas on some of their stuff I saw on their software program of where the balls was traveling, where the bodies were moving more. So it was definitely a fantastic um, opportunity to see softball doubles really looked after. If you, I mean, there's a different strategy when you're playing singles and doubles, and it's true in tennis. Um, what would you say is the different strategy they're using in hardball versus softball? Like when you're teaching, when you're coaching your your um, your players, what were you, you know, advising them to do? Um, during the Commonwealth Games, yeah. you mean, kind of, you know, softball. You know, it was a lot more. It's a different game. It's not as much. Um, there's, a, there's not as many angles as there is in hardball doubles, but you know that it's you're basically playing a side, but you're also using a lot of balls down the middle in softball doubles, where in hardball doubles, there's a few balls down the middle, but not as many as you would see in softball doubles. And, you know, it's it's interesting to see, you know, you can get a stroke from a cross court if your partner doesn't clear very mm. well. So that, that completely changes the game a bit. And just seeing these players use different heights and different angles. And, you know, you saw some players who came out of retirement and they still were able to win a gold medal. It was an even stage then for all the players involved. I mean... A simplistic version of the strategy in hardball doubles is is playing cross court, right? You're playing the opposite person. Does that hold yeah. true in softball doubles? Like, are you playing the the other person across the way? Is it cross court? Um, uh, PJ, you can jump in here. I would say um, not really. I mean, you play the person down your wall a little bit more because you're used to that and playing that side. But there's a there's a few ball balls. As I said before, there's a lot more balls down the middle of the mm. court. You know, and the cross drop is very effective. Uh, you know, little like trickle bows from the back of the court um, down the wall is very effective because it opens up the middle then for the players. PJ was against softball doubles there, so he just decided to bow, bow out of this whole conversation. Yeah, he's he's already won a gold medal. So. <laughs> he's, he's, he's all done. Yeah, he he uh, he's probably having some technical difficulties. Wait, 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 wait. There's more. Hey, quick timeout to hear a word from our sponsor. So how are your squash courts looking these days? Are the ball marks starting to add up? 
Do your courts need some attention and care? Well, in the U.S., there's a new solution coming your way. Pro Sport Court can be your one-stop shop for all your court care needs, from standard cleaning, painting, floor sanding, all the way up to lighting upgrades. Pro Sport Court can have your courts looking like new. Reach out to squashradio at gmail.com to learn more. Now back to our show. So, so I was I was curious. So obviously people don't play softball doubles all season. So a lot of these tournaments that are led up to people are practicing, playing singles, playing singles leading up to the U.S. Opens, leading up to big tournaments, leading up to the Commonwealth Games. There's not really a lot of competitive softball doubles being played before the Commonwealth Games. Does, does, the, does the competition lose something because of that? Or is it just because they're all on equal footing because nobody ever you're practicing a little bit leading up to it and that's it. So everybody's on even footing. It just seems odd to me to have a championship like that where there's no um, no, no lead up to it. Well, that brings me on to my, uh, my uh, second question to you guys is, do you think there's a possibility of college squash, which is the greatest league in the world currently, introducing softball doubles? And the reason why I say that is because um, you've got all these foreign players who come and play in the college squash scene, and they're coming from countries that do have softball doubles courts. And as it's obviously, like I said, it's in all the different games and possibly the Olympics, then it would be a great way to get the grassroots of softball doubles to working because then you've got all these juniors trying to play doubles on these college teams. You have six singles and three doubles teams then. So then you've gone from nine players to 12 players, so it helps the squash program and also keeps the squash coaches on their toes because now they've got to learn softball doubles which is in all in all the games i think if there was if there were courts it'd be great so the issue is obviously courts right like how many softball doubles courts are there even in the country to support something like that i don't think there's one in the u.s yeah there, there oh there's definitely yeah there's yeah. definitely one there's, there's, there's one at the specter center there's one there's in two at the specter center two, two. Yeah, it's where I work, so you, I would think I would know that. But uh, <laughs> um, but there, there's one in D.C., right? The University Club of, of Washington no, has, they has a convertible it off. one. Yeah, so there, there oh, was, um, I would say, less than a dozen across the country. Uh, and then even that, like you said, U Club D.C., they blocked it off some other places. So it just hasn't been utilized. I, I mean, on, on the last pod, Aiden and I talked a little bit about this, and I'm I'm a huge proponent of including doubles. Initially, I was thinking of hardball doubles just because there is more of a structure. There's more of a tour there, to your point, Bill. Like, hey, there's no softball doubles, but it's played at all these major games. I think the biggest X factor here is if it's involved, if we get the green light on the Olympics and doubles is included, that will then force all the questions of like, you know, federations are certainly going to be pushing it more. And then you can always build the facilities you need to support the kind of uh, metals behind that. And then will college squash adopt it? That would just be a matter of time. I think it would be fun to watch for sure on a college level. And I think I think it would be ex- very exciting to watch. But again, I, I just I can't see college universities building softball doubles courts. I can see them transforming a couple of courts to a doubles court more than building a hardball doubles mm-hmm. court. Yeah, definitely. If it gets accepted into the Olympics, I think the whole dynamic will change completely because it becomes becomes a a medal prospect. And then the angles that they'll look at will be completely different. If they start seeing possible Olympic medals uh, at the end of the the chain, then knowing the US, they will definitely start (laughs) building courts. Yes. Is Olympic doubles, is doubles part of the Olympic push? Yes. 
feeling that if it does go into the Olympics, it will have to be doubles as well, just a little bit like the Commonwealth Games. I think you'll have a singles, you'll have your singles events and then your doubles events on top. That could be a game changer. One of the, uh, and I'll speak more from like the context over the years versus like where it stands now because I'm not fully in the loop. But yeah, doubles inclusion has always been a factor. And when you look at it from the outside world, and and if, if they if the IOC knows nothing of squash, but we're in the Commonwealth, we're in the Pan American Games, we're in all these things, and we compete with doubles, it's kind of a push and pull. Like we're saying, no, 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 no one really plays, but we have it at the highest level. So there has been an appeal of uh, especially the mixed doubles because that's rare to have that format of men and women competing really on even par on the same court in the same medal opportunities. So I think that's very appealing. So. All formats, I would say, so, are being considered. So it would have to, I mean, if like next, I don't know when the Olympic decision comes down, but next week, if it does come down that the squash is in the Olympics for 2028 in Los Angeles, doubles is included. At some point, don't, doesn't the juniors in the in the U.S. and around the world start having to part, compete in it? Because it's, it's 2028, so not like Amanda Sobey's not going to, she's going to be, I don't know how old she is now, so she's going to be 40 then, so she's not going to play. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, she could, you know, she can team up with her sister and playing the yeah. doubles. I guess, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm at that at that point. I'm hoping the Farag daughter who got born in Chicago was probably like our number one player. <laughs> right. Is that only six, only six years away though? So she could be she could be one of our players. But yeah, no, seriously though, like like the juniors would have to start playing like as part of their because you don't just want to go to college to play double squash if you've never really played competitive double squash before. Yeah, right? I mean, um, basically, when you get the like PJ and Aiden said, like. When you get the meadow opportunities and that really impacts your funding for NGBs or federations, you're going to align it. So you're going to see a junior circuit start promoting that um, high school circuit, start promoting that college is an X factor, uh, but we'll have to create a, a probably a doubles uh, tour of some kind. So softball and could, could, could softball doubles be played on a single, it can be played on a single score because I've seen it be played with, with skilled players. Um, it, it looks like NASCAR a lot of times. But it is it is played. Um, is that is that an option? No, no, that would be an option. You definitely need a bigger court. You just have the the, the game would just become so boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need the low ten. Well. Remind me because I know there's been so many um, changes over the years. Uh, am I correct that it's twenty seven foot wide now? And is it eleven or thirteen inch ten? Thirteen inch. 10. Okay, so. And how does that how does that all compare to a hardball doubles court? What's wider? What's what has the different ten? I'm, I'm hardball is both. twenty. Hardball is twenty five wide and seventeen inch ten. Seventeen inch ten, okay. And forty five oh. long. Yeah. So this maintains so the thirty two long. And there was a period that it was seventeen inch ten and or fifteen inch ten yeah. and twenty five foot wide. So that they really figured out this is the better size. So curious also, Aiden, since you have probably the most experience with this. So someone like, um, and I, I'm, I'm thinking he's still one of the top double hardball doubles players like Monik Mathur and his partner, would they like be able to compete in softball doubles and, and compete well if they've like, like got a hang, got the hang of it after a bit, like, would they be able to transform their game over to that? Yes, because they grew up being softball players. So even though they're playing hardball doubles, they're really still generally softball players like i hit with manic a couple of times in the last month and he's hitting the ball just as well as normal okay. on the singles court so yeah i mean it's and you remember you're you only it's like doubles hardball doubles you're on one wall you really and it's not really moving so much front to back in softball doubles as there is in hardball doubles so it's not as taxing on you as on your body i do it would be interesting because in tennis 
um, it used to be singles players used to play doubles and that. And what we saw was far more specialization, like people just playing in singles only, and then you get double specialists. So, I mean, what do you think will happen there? I think it's like you look at the Bryan brothers in tennis. They, you know, they were trained professionally by, 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 their, by their father to be the best doubles players of all time, and they were. They had little had little areas on the court that they would only hit into, and so you take that experience and you move it over into softball doubles, and suddenly you've got it at grassroots level, like you said, Connor, with the juniors and, and college squash, and suddenly they're developing these games you know, for the next five years. And so the level of softball doubles will go up a lot as well if there's a Olympic gold medal at the end of it. But do you, And do you think that we'll start to see like, hey, Paul Cole, he's one of the best doubles, play, uh, one of the best singles players, but maybe if there's other talent developing, he he, he just doesn't do doubles? What, what are your thoughts on the crossover? You see that during the um, Commonwealth Games. Yeah, you know, it's not always the best players who win the individuals who win in the... We're in the doubles, and they've got people who are specialized coming in to play um, on the uh, softball double side. Just quickly, in, in tennis, when the, a Grand Slam happens and there's singles and doubles, it happens concurrently. So it's not like the singles competition ends and the doubles competition takes over after that. They play at the same time, and that's why you see a lot of times someone who advances in the draw drops out of the doubles, much to the chagrin of their partner who was hoping to win something, and they're not a, they're a lesser singles player. In in com com games, I, I imagine it was it was was it the singles tournament happened and then the doubles tournament happened. Yeah, and um, on like we'll give Georgina Kennedy an example. She did extremely well in the singles, mm -hmm. but then you know she had to get up the next morning at like seven a.m. to do all these interviews because she won the gold medal and she had two doubles games that day and of three doubles games that day. You know, one two in the female and one in the mixed, and she was she didn't go very far in the in the double side because of. You know, she was so worn out from the singles. So, there there is a balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was. That's what I was getting at. Especially in squash, as opposed to, I mean, tennis. Uh, I mean, say what you want about the five hour matches and stuff, but doubles tennis is, I'm guessing, nowhere near as arduous as doubles squash on the body. Oh. So, sorry to interrupt. So, Aiden, in terms of who the best players, like who who stood out to you other than the people that won, but like from your analysis, like who do you think was had a really good doubles game? In the, uh, Malaysian players did really, really well. And they've been working hard at their softball doubles for a long time now. And they put a lot of time and effort into it. And you can see they they did extremely well in the competition. And they're unfortunate that one of their players had a car accident, but it, they could have done really well, especially in the mixed. I think if you look at, as far as, it, if I was to single out one from the men's, one from the women's, uh, Aidan, was it Rory Stewart from Scotland? Yes. Yeah, he had an excellent talk. I made a comment on air that I got a lot of stick for, but for me, he's the best softball doubles player I've ever seen. Um, he had a very good run in the individuals, actually. He came up against James Wilstrop and took Wilstrop to five and really tested uh, the Englishman. was unlucky not to beat James, actually. A little bit of a lack of experience and a bit of self-belief, and he could have beaten James in the individuals. But he was partnered with Greg Lobben in the men's event, and those two were a formidable pair. Rory Stewart on the backhand side of the course, quite tall, quite gangly, uh, but unbelievable hands. And he's, the, the speed of his brain, the way he could open up the court and manufacture situations, for me, stood out uh, from all the other players. You can look at Paul Cole's court coverage, which was you know phenomenal. But as far as 
and he obviously won uh, in the in the mixed doubles with Joel King. But from an actual player standpoint, I would put Rory Stewart as as the best men's without a doubt. And then on the in the ladies game, Joel King on the forehand side was unbelievable. And she, if you her record speaks for itself. I haven't got the stats in front of me, but she's won a number of gold medals now in the women's. Yes, yeah, she actually won gold in the women's, and she won a gold in the mixed in in 2022. So. Um, unbelievable experience just her strength you would normally think that in the mix it would be a target for the teams to single out the female player but Joel King more than held her own and on that right hand side of the court was was formidable really um, so so you know it is the calm game so and this is me not knowing anything about doubles and, and, and the skill levels needed and the skills needed. But what if, what if like Hamami and Gohar teamed up to play doubles? Would they no. like wipe the floor with these people? Joe King, Joe King is a double specialist. I think she, I don't think anybody will outplay or beat her down the forehand side of the court. In actual fact, well, a couple of the teams put the men on the right-hand side wall on the forehand side to try and compete with Joel. And, and as I said, she more than held her own. I don't think, I don't think there's a stronger forehand in the game. I will say that Alison Waters did exceptional too against um, Joel on that side too. She was unfortunate not to win. I thought she had a great Still got overpowered in the end though. Yeah. She still got overpowered. In the, end. Just the, the sheer physical strength of, of Joel King. Do, do Egyptians play doubles at all? Like any, probably, is there like a, on a singles court, but I don't know of right. doubles courts, softball doubles courts in Egypt. Mm. But I may, I may be wrong. Who else that. would be some players that not part of the Commonwealth Games that would do well at the doubles? Do you think immediately? France, yeah. the French, yeah, French would be strong. Who won the world squash doubles this year? Was it or was there the world yeah. squash doubles? Scotland, Scotland. India, 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 India won it. Scotland in the final, yeah. Uh, okay. Will Strop and Declan James. Who obviously won the world, uh, the Commonwealths as well. They beat they beat Lobin and, and Rory in in five, up in uh, in, Gla- in Glasgow, Edinburgh, hey, not Glasgow, was it? Uh, somewhere in Scotland. Yeah. So- did, <laughs> did 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 Egypt participate? No. Okay, that's that's what I'm curious. I mean, it in- seems to me that like they would obviously hold their own. That obviously, with the skill they have on the singles court, they would be able to, if they practice, become competitive, right? Yeah, I mean, even even in the even in the senior Caribbean games, they played doubles on the mm. singles court. Yeah. Interesting. I still think they're catching up to do, though, Bill. Just going back to a point that you made earlier, you look at the, a lot of the countries that played in the world, uh, the world doubles, were using that as an opportunity to get some experience and some match play in leading into the Commonwealth Games. Right. But countries to the point that you made earlier, they're out practicing and they're doing you know squads and camps and clinics. Over a year in advance, this is not something where they do a crash course four weeks before the tournament. They're suddenly going to get all their players on court and just try and get some uh, some chemistry amongst the teams. This 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 team building and the the picking of the pairings and strategies and tactics would have been done. I know in in the UK it would have been it would have been done at least eighteen months in advance. So they Correct. didn't just they didn't just get a WhatsApp saying come coach. <laughs> no. Okay. I'm cheap. I'm cheap, Bill. I'm cheap. I'm not. You know, you're a great value, Aiden. You're you're of great value. Exactly. Well, before exactly. Uh, we go on to the the next block, um, Aiden, uh, given that this was the topic you want to bring up, anything else uh, on this subject or a closing note? No, I just uh, 
just if we do get into the Olympics, I'd love to see softball doubles in the college game by 2025. Yeah. That I, gives everybody a great, great shot and a great opportunity. How can we grow the sport of squash? Have you ever thought about that? I've really enjoyed all the different ways I've learned about how to help it grow. But the truth is, there is no silver bullet to achieve great success. In fact, it's really about many pieces of the puzzle coming together to help get this done. However, one of the biggest untapped potentials that I've been excited about for over 10 years is the concept of building outdoor squash courts. But not just squash courts, think outdoor squash clubs. Either way, it's a great way to get more visibility for the sport and experience a different way to enjoy and share the sport we love. If you think there's an opportunity to get some courts in your area, reach out to us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. And I can share the latest of what's going on in the sport and let's help open up the sport. All right, Bill, lead us into the U.S. Open as the the wonderful MC. Right. So uh, second platinum event of the year. Oh, sorry. Third platinum event of the year already is coming up. We had we had Qatar and we obviously Egypt just happened. So quickly pivoting to a yet another one is the U.S. Open. One, one of the majors coming up this Saturday, starting in Philadelphia. Everyone's there. All the players, all the top names are there. There should be some really interesting matchups. Obviously, it's the second year it's at the Spectre Center. So just a festival of squash along with a junior tournament happening this weekend. So um, looking forward to uh, this event. And I want to talk about the women's draw first. And we do have Aiden Harris. He is a a, a somewhat of an expert on uh, the women's professional squash tour. So um, talk to us, Aiden, about uh, who you like based on the performances that have been happening in the past this year already. Obviously, we have the, the names Gohar and um, and Sherbini and Hamami uh, and Sobi. Talk about the draw and who do you see coming out as the U.S. Open champ for 2022? Uh, it's going to be a little bit more interesting this year, I think. Gohar was pretty dominant last year, but she's Hamami's been, been playing excellent and um, I just think that it could be it could come down to them in the end. But you know, you can't rule out Shabini. She is absolutely such a fantastic player. And with her loss that she had last month, she's gonna be gunning for it. And so I'm excited to see that. But there's some some tough draws in this event. I mean it's one one good thing about this event is it's now played at the same time as a JCT, which is a top level junior tournament. So you've got the Stefanoni sisters, they're playing on Saturday afternoon and evening. So all the up rising juniors can see that so it's a it's a great way for them all to get together so whoever decided to do that at the same time years ago did a great job so um but then you've got some tough first first round matches you know you've got um uh, you've got uh victor victor playing (laughs) victor victor made it to the semi last year yeah, she's she's gonna have to really work to make it to the semis this year. I mean that that is a rude awakening. A, uh, all of a sudden, your first match of the tournament, and you're stepping on court against arguably the the, the hottest player and the best player. But if on you're Olivia, right I mean, wouldn't you want that almost as your first match? No, hundred percent no. <laughs> no, I mean, if you're gonna no. do it, like, would you rather meet her like get one match under under your belt or? Yes, I'd rather go farther into farther in the tournament than get. Beat, but not that Olivia's going to get beat. Obviously, she has a chance to win. But yes, hundred percent, I would rather play like Tomato Ho in the first round, if that's what you're asking. Well, 
I will say, you know, I'm I'm back in the live to do pretty well here because one, she had a great run last time. Mm-hmm. It's in her hometown. Mm-hmm. She's playing on those yeah, courts every day, territory. and for, for me for that, and also she played really well against uh, Hania in Egypt just this last month. And mm-hmm. they're very similar players, very athletic. Obviously, Hania is really sharp, and she's got a lot of confidence and win that last tournament. But it's you know, she probably saw that draw and she goes, "Oh, got to play Olivia first round." I mean, that's not an easy thing for her to look at too on a home court in a country where she's always played well. No, that that is a fair point looking at it from the other side, but uh, I was just answering Connor's question that, like, no chance that, uh, that Olivia wants to no, play. No, you don't want to, but anyways. if, if we'd she have was going to be on Olivia. in the draw, it's like, you know what, um, given that it is her, she knows these courts, so it's not like you're flying to Hong Kong and you've never played there, you don't know the environment. She knows the environment. Like, if you are going to be facing it, like, maybe go out fresh and see what you can do against her. No, that's fair. Who who out of who out of this draw, Aiden? Uh, besides the big the big guns, um, do you see uh, as a possible dark horse coming out and maybe making making a run into the into the later rounds? Uh, Tinny, you know she faces Joelle um, in the last um, sixteen, but she's had a good year. You know she won the World Masters and sorry the World Games, and you know she, she's one of those players that I really enjoy watching watching play. Uh, but you know, Georgina, you know, she could do really well too. She's, you know, she she was on an ultimate high winning the Commonwealth, and she's had, you know, a couple of tough losses recently. But she's she's just a she just goes in there and just gives everything every single time she plays. And she was really fun to watch. I saw her as a different person. Yeah. In the summer. She's yeah. Injured, I I injuries. Think, though, she hurt herself in Houston, so I'm, I'm not sure where how, where her recovery's at with with that. I know she pulled out of Houston. She after a couple points um, against Tyeb. And then, you know, and then you've got a brutal draw in there for Amanda. She's got either Tayeb or SJ in the quarters. Yes. So hopefully those two will beat each other up before they get to Amanda. And, you know, I've got to get my hats off to Amanda in the last, you know, six months. She's put in so much work off court and it's, you can see it in a game now. And the last two times she's played Goha, she was getting thumped three love for a long time. And it's been 3-1 in the Worlds and a tight 3-1. And then last time she lost in five. So she's got to be more confident going in. And, you know, it's going to be the pressure is definitely going to be on Goha. Yeah. yeah. Especially Amanda again playing on a home court. So, yeah, it should be fun. I, I like Rowan El Arabi. She's been becoming a favorite of mine. So I like her as she, I think she's the seventh seed. So I, I like her making a making a, a dent in this tournament, possibly reaching a semi. She'd have to pull off some pretty big wins, but I think she is capable of that. So on that side, that side of the draw has Gohar, Tayeb, um, El Arabi and Perry. And then the bottom is Sobi, Hamami, Kennedy, um, Sherbini and King. So um, two two. two Pretty balanced draws, I would say. No, nobody has an easy path to the final by any, any means. You're reading the wrong draw that I am. I've got um, Sobi uh, in the top top part of the draw. Yep. Hmm. Um, and then, then you've got a little dark horse in there, Holly Norton. She's had a great summer, and she played really well last night. Yeah, she lost 11-9, 11-9 to Sobi. Yeah, but it was it was an intense match. Really high-quality play from both of them. and hmm. she's, she's, she's come a long way in my books as Holly, so... You know, and she's going to play SJ. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, in the end, I, I do want to see Noran play Hamami in the final because I, I, I <laughs> there's no love loss between those two. Um, it, it, I think it, it makes the, the, the game great when there's a rivalry like that. And those players, they don't like each other. They're from the same country, but they do not like each other. And the, the, uh, 
the the um, body language when they played in Egypt a couple of weeks ago was incredible. The not helping her up when they slipped, none of that. The the couple opportunities where they had to like rifle the ball into the back of each other's legs, and you know they wanted to do it, but they didn't. Um, it just it to me it heightens the women's game. So I think for the tournament itself, a Hamami uh, Goran final would be awesome. Um, I mean, uh, Noran Gohar final would be awesome, but it would be nice to see somebody else, even a Taib or or a Sobi, making a making a run to the final and, and mixing it up a little bit. All right, I'm going to go across the pond and do a different final. I'm going with Sobi and Shabini. Sobi Shabini final. So, so in in my in my draw, they're playing on the same side, so they can't do that. But since I'm wrong, we'll go with yours. Okay. <laughs> okay. No. Yeah. I I think I I think that would be I'd be great for squash, right? I mean, it would be great for the U.S. Open. The, the can you imagine the final, the crowd if uh, Sobi played Shabini in the final, the crowd would be nuts. <laughs> so it'd be great. Uh, love the optimism i just don't see anybody getting past gohar and uh, uh sorry hamami and uh, and gohar reaching the final no shabini I, even i just she's just moved across to starting working with greg uh, mm. i don't think that's been in play long enough to for the for the fruits to come to fruition there but she'll definitely it'll definitely be a good run through for hamami but Hamami's confidence has got to be through the roof right now. She's won the CIB. She's beat the world number one and world number two back to back in the same event. Um, Joey and I mentioned this three years ago when Hamami first burst onto the scene. It's just a matter of time before she, you know, takes the the number one spot. And just the way that she's playing, if you look at her, her biggest threat right now, you'd have to say is Goha, who I hate to say it. I saw some signs of the good work that she was doing with Rodney, where she was mixing paces, changing the heights on the front wall. The last couple of times I watched her play, she's reverted back to that default mode of just trying to bash and overpower the opponents. Hamami's too, she's too physically too good and too skillful to allow that to happen. And I just feel that Hamami now, she's got that, you know, the monkey off her back and she's beaten Gohar in that particular event. <sighs> I just think that she's going to have a little bit too much. She'll have it. She'll be confident with, with that win in the CIB. And she would have figured Gohar out. Unless Gohar changes something in her game again and gets back to mixing up the, the rhythms and the paces, her, her style of play is hard to play as it is. It, it's a little bit predictable. And, the, and those top players, your Shabinis and your Hamamis, they, they would be good enough to pick her off. So you don't think the conditions in Egypt lent to that, lent to her just trying to bash the ball? No. The wind, the wind and, and the... No, the if the anything, that may have favoured her. The, uh, to, if you play at pace on a warm, bouncy court, then that's, that's going to suit you in warmer conditions. As opposed to on a, on a slower, colder court, that's where Hamami's subtleties, the holds, the changing of the paces, the flicks, the stopping of the movements of her opponents will become more apparent. And at the moment, I you know I, I admire all the um, the uh, the optimism. But as I said this before on previous podcasts, right now those three ladies, in my this is just my opinion, are significantly better than the chasing pack at the moment. The gap's closing, but I just feel that those three have got a little bit of a a bit of a window between themselves and and the players below. Right, Connor. Everybody else has given their opinion. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm I'm not versed in this, so we'll, we'll just skip. We'll just edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna pass. I, I think Tomato Ho may, may make a run, so don't don't uh, don't don't um don't don't throw shade at Tomato. I'd like to give Tomato Ho a shout a shout out. She actually, I sat with her at at uh, a dinner down in Houston, and she changed her name because she was tired of people mispronouncing it. She told me, <laughs> which is awesome. Food off of her plate, Bill, or did you leave that alone? 
<laughs> I left her plate alone, but her name was Jose Luck or Jose Luck or whatever her name was. And she changed it to tomato ho because people <laughs> couldn't pronounce it. That's awesome. <laughs> now, if we could get Iker, Iker Baranaba, whatever the F his name is, to change his name, all would be good with the world. So in, in both men and women's squash. What's that? Iker Pahar. Yeah, exactly. So well, uh, let's uh, let's switch so, over to uh, the, the men's. On to the men's. Uh, again, it's wide open for me. I, I think this is going to be one of the most exciting U.S. Opens we've had for for some time. Uh, Asal won it last year with an unbelievable run through, uh, taking down Paul Cole, Tarek Moman um, in that final, that epic final. He was two love down in the final. Um, it's difficult to see. Who's going to come through here? I just feel that Farag's just won the CIB. Uh, he's, he's obviously improved. He's upped his game again. There's a great rivalry going on for the number one spot between himself and Paul Cole. Mohamed El Shabagi in Qatar has now brought himself back into the mix. Um, Victor Cron, if you look at what the Frenchman's done, he won in Nantes. Uh, he took down Marwan El Shabagi there. He's on an upward curve as well. He had a great run in Qatar also. Um, I just think it's wide open and I feel that the draw will play its part in this and it will all depend on the run through. Whoever can make lighter work of their earlier rounds and have more energy in the tank coming into the semi-finals and final stages, I think will have done enough. Right. A crew in, a crew in Mar- uh, um, um, moment. Uh, moment first round matchup. Is Do you think that's less than two hours? Terry- or? For that is going to be a rough first round match. Will be flapping. He will not like the look of that. But yeah, luck of the draw, if you will. So, so going going on before I get to my other question, um, do we? What do we think about Mohammed um, at his age? Not that he's an old man by any means, but he's older, and it looked like it took its effect on him in uh, in CIB the the, the tournament he, in Qatar. Looked like it took it. He went across the across the country to San Francisco to play this NetSuite tournament. Um, yeah. And then now he's it's going to end. The finals are tonight, which is Tuesday. Yeah. Um, and he plays this week and has a long platinum ahead of event ahead of him. What are your thoughts on him doing that as opposed to getting his rest and just practicing, maybe staying in Philly and just staying in Philadelphia and hitting, hitting all week? Knowing Mohammed as well as I do, which isn't that well, but he this everything would have been calculated. He would have discussed this with Greg. And he will be using the next week to, to find something in his game or get, get a couple of decent hard matches into his system, whether he wins it or not, I don't think that is a main priority for him. He will, he will still have one eye on the US Open. So it would have been planned, the fact that he's gone over there. I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea that he does it. Um, best of three format, which certainly helps the players when they come into a a major event like the US Open. But it was something that would, would have been discussed in depth with, with Gautier. I don't think... Um, I mean, all will be revealed. But Mohamed, he's definitely playing better. He's, his demeanour on the court looks a bit calmer, a little bit more relaxed. He's not purely relying on his physical strength and trying to blast the players off the court like he had a lot of success with in his earlier career. The last couple of tournaments in Qatar, we, I've never seen him lob so much and take the pace off the ball as much as I did. There seems to be a bit of an economy of movement as well, which at his age, like you said, and playing the way that he does, is only going to help him. Such a wealth of knowledge and experience in the big situations. 
So he will definitely. I th- I feel like he'll be a feature, possibly, possibly. The, re- the reason the reason I asked the question is the last time this happened, real uh, most recently was uh, he played. Uh, he went and played the bronze tournament down at Squash on Fire and and won. I think he won. He might have won that actually, and then got beat early rounds in Chicago a couple weeks later at uh, at Windy City. So uh, by by Ibrahim. Very, that was a very Mohammed. That was a Mohammed that was searching for something in his game. He looked lost there. In actual fact, who was he playing? He was playing the English boy. Was it Rooney? Patrick Rooney? He was down. He was down one yeah, love and seven right. three to Rooney in uh, squash on fire. And, and, and he should have lost. But he managed to come through. He won that. He beat Macon in the final, I think. Um, managed to scrap through that. But it was a very different looking Mohammed. That was just pure physical strength and and just basically trying to dig himself out of a hole. He He, he didn't look like he really was thinking as much about the way he was playing. He was just trying to find a way to win. That's a very different look to what I've seen in the last two events with Mohamed. There's a different air about his game and he looks a lot more comfortable and he seems to be enjoying playing again, which we haven't seen in a couple of years with Mohamed. So um, I, I think it'd be a slight, I mean, all will be revealed, but I think it'd be a different outcome with Mohamed. Aiden? Um, one person that we haven't mentioned is Diego. I feel like Diego, you know, he's he just lost to Marwin last night in a in a close match, but you know he did really well at the U.S. Open last year. He lost he to Sal in the final, if I remember. And it was pretty close, and he played some exceptional course. He's that silent performer. He's you know he's ranked four in the world. He's put a lot of work in as well this summer, and you know I, I don't I wouldn't count him out. And his his draw looks a little bit more comfortable than some of the players. I mean. He's seeded for. I think he's got a brutal draw. You got Dazuki to to play Makin in the quarters, and then the winner plays Elias. I think that's a tough run. Dazuki and Makin's going to be a real, uh, a real <laughs> ding dong, and then Elias is going to have to take on the winner of those two. Yeah, but yeah, but they should have beaten each other up by yeah. then. I still, I still think that's going to be tough. We'll see. We'll see, PJ. As you say, we'll see how the cards play out. Yeah, I mean the top. Yeah. Half, I mean, again, my I can't read a draw as we showed by uh, by the uh, by the my women's analysis. But isn't the t- the top of the draw uh, seems to be a little more difficult? Uh, I agree with Aiden it, with Farag, uh, Marwan, uh, Asal, Hashem, and uh, Hasham and uh, and Momin. Yeah, I would say Paul Cole will be looking at that draw uh, as the two seed and thinking, yeah. "I'm in the better half." <laughs> yeah, that that's exactly exactly yeah. what I was thinking. So so Paul Cole is um is the number one player in the world right now. Uh, as we as we stand right. here as we stand here uh, midweek uh, before the U.S. Open, a- after having just lost to um, to uh, to uh, Ali in a right. platinum event just a week ago, and yet the rankings are done every week, and he is now number uh, Ali lost his ranking after beating him. I have reached out to people who I think are the foremost um, knowledgeable people when it comes to uh, n- non-players and non-obviously PSA employees asking them, how is that possible? And I'm going to read the responses. And PJ, we're going to ask you also. But here's the, here's the, resp- I'm going to, here's the responses that I got and, um, from, from what I consider knowledgeable people this morning. And I asked the question, do you know the timing of the rankings in regards to the tournaments? Seems odd that Call is now number one after losing last week. Joey Barrington, n- no idea how it all works. Very strange. Thank you, Joey, for that insight. We appreciate it. Lee Drew. I'm not sure, but it ha- might have to do with points coming off as well, but not sure. 
Thank you, Lee Drew. Okay. So we've, we've, we've tapped the, uh, the PSA TV people who follow this probably closer than anyone. So we're going to go to the other PSA person who happens to be on this podcast. PJ, why is Paul Call the number one player in the world right now? Absolutely no <laughs> idea. It's as simple as that. I can honestly say I just have no understanding of how the ranking system works. Any, Aiden, Aiden, I mean, you follow this. Any idea why, why like this happened what, in the, with the weekly rankings? I see with the monthly possibly is happening, but with weekly? Well, I think, you know, it's all done with those, um, you know, high-profile sports agents now who know that they'll get a nice 20% cut if um, they change it from monthly to weekly because suddenly their players are back up to world number one. So that's my reason. It's all about the okay. agents. Okay. <laughs> I think that a lot of the movement will, will be to do with a little bit what Lee Drew said because the because of normally those points will come off annually on a, on a annual cycle mm-hmm. that that Paul Cole's obviously lost a significant number of points at that time of the year. He hasn't replaced them with better points this time around. So as a result of that, there'll be a flip. Maybe Ali had a poorer phase of the year last year, but that's obviously going to change now with this new system coming in place because it will be a much more accurate reflection on where the players are That's what I thought it would be, and that's why I was surprised it happened. That's why I raised the question. So coming out of COVID, I know they had switched. It was a... um... It used to be a 12-month, and it extended to an 18-month rolling. The dividers went down. So we're going to see a little bit of funk coming out of that. Um, going forward, I think it's it's either 12 months or 13 months, and then the divisors. So like they said, it, it's if it is the 18 months, then it's, it's calculating longer of when the points were on. And Paul had a, an amazing streak when Ali didn't. So it does have to do with what came off uh, like almost 12 months ago or 13 months ago. That would impact. What came off Ali's, Ali's record. record or what Paul did. So maybe Paul had a bad performance and that came off. So now, so it, it, there's a lot, it's a trailing one year record. It doesn't weight recent performances any better than it did a year ago. I thought, I, I thought that was the point of the, no, going to one week, the right, one so. week, but it still, exactly. It, it'll take you're, a year to catch up. Will it not just, for example, if you look at Victor, she made the semifinals last year. That's a massive amount of points that are going to be coming. If you're not, if she's not careful, and I hope it doesn't happen, she could be a significant drop in her total because she would have accumulated yeah. so many points in that one event last year, which will now be dropped off exactly. of her device. Yeah. So the 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 weekly rankings will just will allow for more churn, but it's still going to factor basically a year's worth of performance. Okay. All right. Just curious. Just curious. So who do, who do we like? Uh, let's go around the room here. PJ, who do you like on the men's men's side? Do, 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 who do I fancy? I'm going to go Paul Cobb. Aiden. I'm going to go Paul Cobb. Fancy it. I think he's got a slightly better draw. I've got a feeling that Farag, Farag and Asal, if they don't play each other on the way through, they're going to have some chunks taken out of them by other players and they're going to be into that final a lot more fatigued than Paul. I just feel it's a perfect scenario for Paul Cole. Aiden Harrison. I'm going to piggyback PJ on that one. I think you just explained that perfectly. And I'm going with Paul Cole as well. He's, you know, he's, he's one of those players that he really, really gets up for the big events. And this to him is a big event. And as, as PJ just said, you know, he's got the, He's still got a tough draw, but it's not locked and loaded like the top half of the draw is. So I'm going to go with Paul, especially that he's got back his will number one spot. He'll want to make a statement. Connor, you're going to say you no, don't know anything uh, about this? I think if I, were, if I were betting, which I'm not, I would I would probably do Paul Cole. 
I kind of want Mustafa to win it again. I think it's a great story. I think last year he proved that he could he could go multiple rounds. Like every time I thought he was he was gassed out, he still found it each round. Like he's still young enough where he can do that. But who do I think is probably going to win? Ali. <laughs> like, no, right, right, right. I like a Farag Elias final. Um, I, 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 the, the, the greatest match I've ever seen at the U.S. Open was a match that was not on the draw. It was when Farag was in college still. He may have been a senior and he was um, playing the, um, the qualies. He may have gotten through to the qualies at that point. It was in the evening down on the rec courts at Drexel. Diego was coming off. He was like off the world juniors and they played each other in front of myself and Mike way. We were the only two people watching and they played a, a, a five game match. And it was just, I, it was mesmerizing. It was on a hard court, like a, like on those rec courts at Drexel. And it was still, that way you that's the only place they've let, they let me MC at the U S open hundred percent. The case I haven't been able to drag myself out of there, but yeah, I just, it was just a night. Nobody was around. They were just playing each other, playing for the fun of squash, and it was incredible. So I'm hoping for a redux of that, and I put, I'm taking Diego Alias to win the U.S. Open over Ali Farag. So in that way, if it happens, Whoa. everybody's like, holy shit, Bill knows what he's talking about. But if it doesn't, it's like, eh, nobody cares. Everybody picks Farag. So. <laughs> no lose, no lose situation. So before I go and before we end this, um, and just because we're supposed to be staying up on the latest what's going on in squash around the world, have you guys been following the Asal the rumors of Assal coming to the United, not coming to the United States, but leaving Egypt because uh, fed up with uh, what's going on over there as far as the Federation and all. Have you guys been following that story at all? I saw one post, but I didn't see with any sort of substance behind it. So, so I'm not sure it's related. And my, my insiders, you know, cause I have, a, I have a network, I have a network. My insiders uh, in Egypt are telling me they're not related, but the head of competitions for Egypt resigned yesterday. Uh, Al Barossi. Did you guys read his resignation yep. letter? Yeah. So, yeah. so the word, the word on the streets, on the streets of Cairo, which of course I'm very familiar with, um, uh, <laughs> having, having been there once maybe, um, no, is that, uh, basically it became a full-time job for him and he asked the Federation for some help and the Federation told him, no, you're not getting any help. So he said, I can't do this any longer. Um, but it, it shines a light on, from what I understand from my, from my sources inside Egypt, who I was texting with all morning that, um, that, uh, the Egyptian Federation is a mess. Like there is the infighting amongst the Federation is just like if, if, if it was happening in the U.S., you'd read about it and every squash or squash website. But it's kind of hidden. And it's also very hard to understand the translations on uh, on Facebook when people post things about Egyptian squash. Although I do try to do the translate, I could never quite understand exactly what they're talking about. So I could tell by you guys faces you have no interest in what I'm talking about or no idea. What I'm no, talking about. I don't think there's any truth in it. We've heard, you know, obviously Mohammed. Uh, El Shabagi moved across to the UK. Um, Asal may be a little bit upset or annoyed with some of the politics that are going on behind the scenes. I don't think it's going to be enough for him to, to con even consider relocating. So where could he relocate to? He couldn't be a citizen. You have to be a, Shabagi is a citizen of England. That's, I mean, he's an English citizen. That's why he was able to go move there, right? First of all, you'd have to track when he last represented Egypt, right? Because if he's going to make a switch, it's a three-year right. transition that you can't represent in the other country. You'd have to establish residency. All that can be fast-tracked. Okay. Like within, okay. you know, again, Aiden and PJ know this better than I do. But um, I, I, I don't think it's going to happen, personally. I think he's given the amount of attention that Assal gets in Egypt. He's not going to be able to get that elsewhere. And if he 
And if you trans and no. I think he's going to be, he wants to be the next like Egyptian icon and he's already breaking through at levels that none of the other Egyptians have yet. And there's more media attention on it than ever before. So that's my, t- I think there's, and then if you hear like, Oh, Sal might leave, then he puts public pressure on the like, treat him right. Got it. Got it. I wasn't aware of the three year window. So obviously that's a big deal. Cause that means he couldn't play in international. No, no, no. You, sorry. You just can't represent Egypt. Right. Yeah. But he that's can play I mean. PSA. No, I understand that, but he couldn't play for another country, is what I mean. Yeah. Like in in team competitions, he couldn't represent another country like Shabbat. Right, but yeah. that only, first of all, it only happens like every two years anyway. So you really, and he, he when was the last time he represented Egypt? World Juniors. Sure, what he would have played in for Egypt. I don't think he's played no, in the so, world team. No, so it would have been juniors, so he might already be through that window. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe a legend. Right. I was just curious if you guys were, were following all that. And I just find I find it interesting that the most successful country in the world's federation is it seems like it's just a complete shambles. And I just don't know if that's just conjecture on and people on the internet pick, pecking away at it. But the resignation of someone who's as high profile as Alborosi kind of shows that there might be a little dysfunction there, I would think. One more uh this this question comes from a listener. And while we have these these two uh, oh. uh this is right. uh, Evan from Baltimore. Great podcast. Maybe this has been addressed in your podcast, but I was curious why the draws for the PSA tournaments come out so far in advance. For instance, the draws for the November PSA tournament in New Zealand are already out, whereas in pro tennis, the draws are made only a few days beforehand. Is there a reason for this? Seems like rankings could change a lot uh, in the intervals leading up to it. PJ Aiden, what do you guys think? First of all, you've got travel. For these players to go into a tournament, you know, they, they need to know when they need to travel. They need to prepare for their matches. You know, they want to see who they're playing. You know, as we all know, squash is a lot harder sport than tennis. <laughs> and um, you know, back-to-back days in tennis, you got you know got a day off in between each match. So there is a lot of planning that needs to go in to these matches. Also, it's for a promoter's standpoint. They they want to know who's in the tournament so they can start promoting to their sponsors. Like we've got four of the top 10 players in the world and we want you to come to this night we've got an exhibition with this and things like that so it it's all about conducting a package and selling a package to the to the punters out there and you know you want you want to know who's in the draw you don't really want it to happen a week before because like oh that person didn't come i thought they were coming i made plans to come here and no it's a planning thing but can't there be a difference between the entrance list and the draw like, you know, your entrance list a month before that's fine. I don't think that's what he's complaining about. I think he's more complaining about like, I know who's going to play who. And like, in the meantime, Joel King could lose three tournaments before that in the first round. And she still could be like the fourth seed in so-and-so in like a tournament in New Zealand. I think that's what his question was. Am I correct? So it's not like who's entering the tournament. It's more like where they're seated and where they're, who they're playing in the tournament. Yeah, I've got a feeling that this, this structure may actually change. I think the structure that's in place is one that's been around for quite some time before, before the days of the internet and email and, and what have you back in, back in the day, you used to have to fax, fax your entries into the ISPO yeah. or, or, you know, uh, so I think with this, now this updated weekly um, ranking system, I just feel that technology will catch up and we will have a shorter time frame between closing date of entries and first round uh, starting. But I'll agree with what I've been saying. If you're you're a a promoter, you want to go to a sponsor and potentially say, you know, I can guarantee you six of the top 10 players, 
for that, it's going to be the budget's going to be X amount. So the, the sponsors need it from that standpoint. But I just think it's 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 an outdated system that was in place before that. I just feel will will stop. I, I I would totally agree. That's exactly uh, kind of what I said. It's a legacy system. I think the switch to weekly's rankings is going to be a catalyst to the changes. I think, like you said, to your point, Aiden, like as a promoter, you definitely want to know who's in your tournament and in your draw. Uh, but then the draws can come out. I mean. Personally, I would want at least three weeks. If six weeks would be ideal as a promoter, um, just you can start doing, like Aiden said, a little bit more planning. People kind of wait for the draws to go see what days they want to go, that kind of stuff. Well, that's that that's yeah. a thing for sure. But I, I think it would be very exciting. I mean, based on if there was a little more randomization of the draws, obviously you can't have like the number one player playing the number two player in the first round. But if you had uh, different like one through eights or one through whatever, and then the night before the tournament started, have like an actual random drawing with people there. Mm. I think that'd be exciting. Like a good way to kick off your tournament at the, imagine yeah, the, the pre, the pre tournament nice dinner though, nice with the, with the men and women, like instead of doing the nonsense that they do at some of these dinners <laughs> and having speakers where they're bored, everyone's bored to tears is actually having the draws done that night. That would be incredible. I don't know if I share that. Yeah. 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 All right. Sorry, sorry. Trying to grow the sport. <laughs> sorry about that. Apologize for trying to apologize. for. Have a one-off fun event like that. Yeah. The players just wouldn't go for it. You need, you need time to prepare to play these events, and you need to know your draws. And an old story back in the day, um, Rodney Martin actually he he would look at his draws and he would actually pre-plan his game plans for his potential um, opponents, and he would play a certain way. If he knew he was going to play Jahangir in the final. Um, in his quarterfinals against a Tristan Nancaro or a Brett Mike, he would play a specific style of play leading into the way he was going to play in the final. So yeah, I'm not saying all the other players on tour are as detailed as Rod was or is, but players will need to be in a certain frame of mind going into the first round, knowing or having an idea of what their draw is like. For example, let's say Farag has to play... Iker Baranova. Um, Iker yeah. Baranabo. Well, there, there you go. go. There you go. He's him in the first round. But in his second round, he's playing Asal. Or Ter- he will approach that game slightly differently. No, of course. So you to suddenly throw that on them at the 11th hour after a dinner and a few shoddy speeches, uh, I just I can't see that. I can't see no. that. Happen. All right. There you go. Imagine, but the but, Buckingham Cup would consist of everyone would have to wear but, eyewear. There would be literally no dissent, any dissent, you were disqualified the minute you dissent to any call. You're, you, the minute you turn around and, and argue a call, you're out of that, Matt. You're out of the tournament. It would be for a million dollars, so everyone would play it. Winner. $10 million. $10 million. <laughs> so, well, no, a million. the winner would get a million dollars. Winner and, takes and, all. But they, they'd have to wear eyewear. No dissent. All right, Bill, but, you're gonna, but we're going to have the Bill Buckingham rules. We're going to have 16 players. We're going to uh-huh. do the draw the night before, like you said. Uh-huh. And then whoever uh-huh. wins, we're going to do another draw the next round. So every draw you redraw. Oh. <laughs> just, like, just like the FA Cup. That's actually kind of That would be. That, there you go. There you go. Hey, well, hey, Aiden, welcome aboard the Bill Train. It's a fun place to be. It's a nice ride. It's comfortable. Relax. Put your seat in an upright position and, and be ready to ready to have some fun. So you, you know, go. this actually was this tease up the teaser I was having for another episode of um, talking about experimenting with um, – scoring systems and the nation's cup. So that's kind of becoming one of the experiments for the PSA. Um, are you guys up to speed on this or I, I have to hop unfortunately. So, um, um, but I, I can't, I am up to speed on it as I am with everything we've been talking about, but, um, I, I'm, um, so, but I, I do have to go. So it was nice talking to you. Aiden. Good job. 
Um, see you guys. All right, bye. All right, cheers. We'll see you soon, Bill. See you. Yeah, we'll we'll, see we'll close it out because this was a good uh, round out of like experimenting. I love that that concept, Aiden. And um, yeah, the Nations Cup. What what other kind of things would you guys want to see experimented with? I would I would love to see a, a three player mixed team, two male, one female team event. They do that. Yeah, it would be, be, be fun to see that kind of like. It'd be, it'd be a good way to kind of bring them yeah. all together. You know, now it's one tour. It's been a one tour for a while. It'd be good to see, kind of see, you know, two male, one female. And it doesn't have to be each country. It could be each continent. It'd be interesting. Mm. Kind of like the Labor Cup, kind of like experiment with like team format, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it could be good. You know, even if you have a squad of players, you're not always playing the same three players. You have five players and, Three male, two female. It could be, could be interesting. Or you go with two female, one male. You know, just to totally yeah. change it up. Yeah. What about um, <laughs> just random? Uh, I like that idea of like, like you take a, you take a squad of six players, and then you but you have a bench mm. where you can sub players. Like each day or each game. Like what do you each match? Each each match. I don't know how. I, I, I actually like I each game. That would be make it really interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. First, first team to win yeah. seven games. First team to win huh? seven games. Yeah, and each everybody has to play a certain number of games, or the females have to play yeah. a certain number. That's interesting. I don't know. Like can't play more than two games in a row. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has. Everyone yeah, has to go out there. It, so then yeah. you're figuring out where you where that's you kind put of them on the ladder. A and, lot of a lot of strategy going into that one. Yeah. A lot of movement there, a lot of catching up. Yeah, I like that. Back Look forth. at this. Yeah. All right. You could do north of the world right. versus south of the world. Oh, interesting. Yeah. North well, good. South. Well, yeah, we're going to... Bye, boys. I've got to go. Yeah. Have you recorded good, this? So I just want to thank you guys for, for your time, and uh, we'll do it again soon. All right. Cheers. See you, right, Bye. Bye. Boys, see you soon. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms that you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.